Good morning. My name's Silas, and um, it's good to be worshiping with you. We typically, over the last couple weeks, have been doing a moment where we pass the peace of God to each other. In a moment, we're going to do that. But I also want us to move into something else after that. So we will pass the peace, but then I want you to discuss this question in groups. And we're going to take about five, six minutes to do that. Um, The question will be up here on the screen. And so... There's this verse in, that we're going to be looking at today. It's, uh, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. And the question I want you to think of is, what do you make of this verse? How might this inform how you live out the gospel? Okay, think on that. Think on that. And now let us pass the peace of God to each other. Not in fear and trembling, but in uh, a hope of fear. Not, not a fear, goodness gracious. Um, of passing the peace. And so let us pass the peace to each other and then discuss this question. So take about two minutes or so, greet each other, let's pass the peace, and then we'll take four or five minutes in groups to think about this question. How does this verse uh, land on you? What does it make you think of? How does it inform how you live out the gospel? Sound good? Let us break and pass the peace of God and go. As, as you read that verse, um, as you read that verse, what do you think of? I mean, does anyone want to share? If you weren't able to share in a group, perhaps this is a great space for you to share with a group <laughs> that just happens to be larger. Yeah. But yeah, what do you think? What stands out from this verse? How do you read it? How does it read you? What do we make of it? Sharing that. The, the idea that vulnerability comes when love is perfected, like the... That doesn't come with every vision of love out there, but uh, perfect love, complete love, brings out vulnerability. Absolutely. It makes me think, does anyone, did anyone, and has anyone read this verse and thought, like, I don't know, loving is pretty scary, right? Like, I don't know if we can say fear disappears, but what do we make of this verse? If it doesn't, what, what do we do with this? Vulnerability is there. It raises questions about love and fear together. What does punishment look like and how does that fit into the verse? This is part of the scope of this sermon and this passage, this, this book we've been in for the last couple weeks, where we're reading 1 John, and 1 John is a written sermon to us and to the church. So it's a little different than what we've looked at in the past which is typically a letter or a gospel, something that starts with um, a clear audience and it goes this direction. As a sermon, this is one of those books where if you read it, it'll just circle around a topic or a theme in a couple different ways. So it'll look at light, it'll look at justice, it'll look at love, and it just kind of circles. And that's the way that rhetoric worked in the ancient Near East. You did it that way to engage. And so with that, unpacking some of these threads um, over the last couple weeks. We've looked at a thematic sermon on confession and sin. What does it mean to confess? What's it mean to uh, engage sin and to recognize that confession brings us to healing and to wholeness? We then went in week two with an exegetical sermon. That's a sermon that's um, verse by verse going through about love of the Father, the Father's love. We had uh, last week a semiotic sermon. That's a sermon that looks at an image that's tied in the story and then trace that story through the scope of Scripture. 
So a different type of sermon, but a semiotic sermon looking at truth and how truth, the image, opens us up to others. And then today and next week, we're going to start looking at how does this sermon start to land the plane? Like, what's it trying to do? How does it impact our lives? Why does this book and this sermon matter? How does it affect us? And so with First John being a sermon— when we come in week by week and break it up, we might lose some of the, the threads of continuity. But I want to start with that question for us to discuss because there are ways to uh, hear a text and a sermon that open us up to the revelation of God. And at the same way, we also can probably all think of ways where we have heard the text explained or used in ways that seem to craft or um, deliver a vision of God that is a little more challenging to think of, that feels like it's, uh, there, there's tension with the God that we seem to know. And so we wrestle with this anytime we preach. It's one of those recognitions also. There's never one sermon given on a Sunday. There's the amount of people in the room. That's how many sermons are given. We're all receiving something different. And so with this understanding of our passage, of the context. Let us enter in prayer. Let us engage and hear from God as we look at this passage about fear, love, punishment. How does this all come together? And how is God in this? If you would, join me in prayer and let's, um, let's take time and prepare our hearts. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time to gather. We're grateful for this time to pause. We pray that you would speak to us and through us in this moment, that we would hear your voice well, that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Our passage this morning is from 1 John 4, and we're going from verses 16 through 21, uh, 16 through the end of the chapter. If you would, read with me here. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. For we are as he is in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, uh, he has seen, cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother. If you're anything like me, out of all the verses that we just read, um, verse 18 was often quoted in my church experience growing up. Um, that might not be universal for everyone, but this idea, there's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love casts out or drives out fear um, because fear involves punishment. 
So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. This is one of those verses that in uh, context growing up, the, the sermon would pretty much preach itself. Right? The, the end goal is don't fear. If you do love, and if you really are known by God, and if you really love God, if God loves you, then you will recognize fear has no place in your life. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, obviously, what I'm framing is one way to read this passage. What we're going to do is look at other ways to engage the story, other ways to engage the passage, and to think about what is being said in the midst of this portion of a sermon that spans five chapters. When we jump in midstream, what is being missed in the context? And what is being said by God as we engage this story? Um, this thing that's meant to invite us to uh, the threat of God that we've looked at for the last couple weeks. Within uh, Christianity, we can tend to do this in a bunch of different ways. We can take a verse in the middle of a sermon or a letter and then derive theology from that. And from there, that theology grows legs and it works in our life. And it can work in our life in powerful ways. So think about, um, think about when athletes put Philippians 4.13 on, uh, on their face. We're about to watch the Super Bowl. Someone might have like the Bible verse or something um, under, or under their eye on like the, I don't know what you call that, the, the mark they put on under their face. Does anyone know what I'm talking about, those things? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, that thing, I don't know what it's called, but do you, uh, you have that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, here's the thing. We can preach that and use that and put that on signs and put it on doors and all that thing to invite us to think about our life as something that we can empower ourselves. We can grind. It can be motivation to get through do what needs to get done. And yet, like, that passage is about contentment in any situation that you find yourself in, not in being able to craft your situation, not being able to make something happen for yourself, but the verses before and after frame out that this verse is uh, about being content, whether you are having a lot or you have a little. Right? Whether you uh, are able to get to your, your destination or you're not able to get there, you can do all things. You can bear all things. You can exist in the situations. This famous verse is often distilled to be simply about personal motivation and getting through something tough, which isn't a bad message. It's just it's incomplete for how we're being told and how we're being invited into the story of God. The re reality is that it is more so talking about endurance in the midst of any season in life that comes our way because Paul has rooted his life in Christ. In that, Philippians 4, uh, the message changes when we take a step back and we read that verse in the midst of the context. So the same applies here for 1 John 4, 18. Most English translations, if you look um, in, in your Bible, will split verse 16 into two parts. So the first part ends a paragraph, and then it begins a new one, and we're kind of jumping into this new paragraph of the sermon, this new portion. So look at the passage again. Verse 16, we'll jump in at the beginning of a new paragraph, or a new thought. 
God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. For we are as he is in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, he has, not, he has seen, cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves must also love his brother. Notice how this paragraph starts, how this new thought starts, how this portion of the sermon, how it begins. It begins with this idea that love leads. Love leads. The first thing we see in this passage is that love must lead in our lives. Since God is love, verse 17 continues, this is how love is perfected. It's made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. For we are as he is in this world, as Christ is in this world. It's a powerful truth. Love, it leads. And this means that as we live out our love for others in the same way that Jesus loved us and the world, we'll be filled with confidence in the day of judgment. When we allow love to lead, we are able to love others as God loves us. But it makes us think, like, what do we make of judgment? What do we do with that? Judgment, as we've been tracing the images of confession and sin and healing and all those things through the book of 1 John, judgment is healing. Judgment is purifying. It makes whole. We can contrast this with visions of judgment that are meant to press us down, that are meant to obliterate us, to make us nothing. Judgment, we probably have experienced it some way or some way, uh, some, some form or fashion. We, we may have experienced a kind of judgment that leaves us with nothing, that leaves us as dust. That is not the judgment of God. The judgment of God is one that builds. The judgment of God is one that brings together. The judgment of God is one that makes whole. Now you might be thinking, well, you can just say that. I mean, we can say judgment lands in that way, but how do we know? How can this be so? If we trace out that love leads, the trajectory of this passage and the trajectory of this sermon that John's delivering, it, it says love leads, which leads to our next idea. Fear fades. Love leads and fear starts to fade. Because when love leads, this second truth starts to come alive in this passage. And that's this. When love leads and fear fades, fear of judgment fades in the presence of love. It's similar to what we heard earlier about vulnerability and how perfect love allows 
for that vulnerability to come out. We see this passage in this verse. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. And we don't want to miss this link between verse 18 and verse 17. If we miss this, this is where we can start to mishear this whole passage. This is where we can start to mishear what's being said in 1 John 4. This passage isn't trying to outlaw experiencing fear. It's not doing that. Instead, it's talking more precisely about a fear that resists God's judgment. It's talking about a fear that resists God's judgment. It's talking about a fear that resists allowing God to highlight things in our life and to bring them up because they are keeping us unwell. That's what judgment is doing. To make a judgment is to make a declaration or a, 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 to, to declare about something, to make um, some kind of decision about something around us. And when we experience the judgment of God, God is highlighting for us things that are detrimental to our well-being and to the well-being of creation. Things that are keeping us from being able to engage the mission of God well. All through 1 John, the refrain that God is love rings over and over and over again. From the first verse through the end, we're going to hear that phrase. God is love. And now when the judgment of God comes up, we can imagine being put in our place. This is how we can think of it. We can imagine that God's judgment is something that crushes us, that leaves us as, uh, as being nothing. But when we fully understand and experience God's love, we don't need to live in fear of God. I'm going to say something scandalous, but I believe it with every, with, with every part of my being. And that's this. God is not an abuser. God is not an abuser. God doesn't say he loves us and then violates our agency. He doesn't do that. That's not how the judgment of God works. That's not how the love of God manifests. That's not how the character of God comes about in our life. God does not do that. Love expressed in that way never makes fear fade. It only heightens fear and then makes us hide. It heightens fear and it makes us hide. But that is not God. It's not that things are good today and when the other, uh, when we think of God in that way, we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's not how this works. This is not the love of God. When love leads, fear of judgment fades. And this, pas- this passage isn't condemning feeling fear, full stop. It's challenging retributive understandings of God and God's judgment that misrepresent how, in reality, God's judgment builds us up, doesn't grind us down into nothingness. When love leads, when God leads, our understandings of God, fear fades. 
because we begin to crave accountability. We begin to crave the judgment of God because the judgment of God doesn't just call us out and cancel us. This is one of the major distinctions we want to make. The judgment of God doesn't call us out, cancel us, and leave us stranded, abandoned by ourselves. The judgment of God calls us up into the refining life with God, the life with God that heals our views of God, of ourself, our views of others, and our views of creation. This is kind of what we talked about last week, where the hiddenness of God, hiding, or hiding ourselves away from God, and not experiencing the truth, keeps us hidden from God, ourself, our neighbor, and creation. But the judgment of God calls us up into the life to live and breathe and have our being, and to find that God is one who heals. God is one who opens us up to other. God is one who makes whole. All through this passage, when we say perfect love, that word there, perfect, the other word, or the Greek word telos, is complete, whole, right? Made whole. Love made whole drives out fear. And we are called into a love that is a divine relationship that makes our lives whole as we practice love in the world. When love leads, fear fades. And this leads us to our last building block, our last idea. And that's this. When love leads, fear fades, confidence reigns. When love leads, fear fades, and confidence reigns. When we understand that God's judgment in love is healing, we can live in confidence. Confident that God invites us to actualize God's love in the world around us. Confident that we can tangibly, tangibly embody God's love in the lives of others. That we can reflect that. That we participate in the being of, life, uh, of God. As love leads, Christ gives us an example of radical love. As Amy noted two weeks ago, our love for others is made possible because of God's love revealed to us. And when we have confidence in God's love for us, we are able to love others with a deep, selfless love. We can love without fear of judgment. Now the question is, what does this look like? You might agree. You might be all on board. Love leads, fear fades, confidence reigns. But what does this actually look like in our lives? Reverend uh, Cordy Tyndall Vivian was a civil rights leader and community organizer who dedicated his life to working for justice and equity for all. Now, he believed deeply in the power of love and compassion to change the world, and he did this through nonviolence. Right? So he wasn't unique in this. He was partnered with... Uh, MLK, 
In fact, MLK would refer to him uh, as the best preacher he's ever heard. That's who this guy is. He passed away a couple years ago. He actually passed away on the exact same day that Senator John Lewis passed away as well. And so in the Atlanta area, both of them passed away. um, And both were significant voices in the civil rights movement. Fear, again, often associated with punishment or anxiety or insecurity. When that happens, um, that can be crippling. And certainly in his time, in his context, he's able to, uh, he does feel the fear of losing life. He uh, was put in jail multiple times. He was beat. He talks about, I was listening to a, a sermon he gave yesterday. He talks about how he's getting brutalized by people, multiple people. He's just being beat up. He talks about how his work and the work he's trying to do, it has a specific end. He goes on and he'll say, you know when you ask people to give up hate? You have to be there for them when they do. When you ask people to give up hate, you have to be there. For them when they do. He's able to say this because he's embodying and he's trying to live out a vision of perfect love that doesn't have fear of what will happen. Fear of has he lived his life right or wrong? Fear has fear of the judgment of God coming in his life. He is secure. That the judgment of God that's calling him to love the people who are hating him, that's making the life of God come alive. Not just in his life, but in the life of others. Now, he didn't ignore the harm that a person had done. But he wants to pay careful and close attention to what was going on within the perpetrator. The people who are against him. To cause them to want to make that harm in the first place. He said he wanted to help them see that they really were doing harm to others. He thought if they would recognize that, maybe that would change the mind. And he wanted to offer them the space to become something else. Giving them the kind of love and attention that they can find healing, which then impacts the rest of the world. When love leads, fear fades, confidence reigns. This is what it can look like. Being able to say, you know when you ask people to give up hate? You have to be there when they do. When I was in Tennessee, I was pastoring, and uh, one of my first weeks, there was a lady who came up and said, I don't know if you can be my pastor. There was a bunch of transition stuff, and it just happened really quickly. She names this, and we'd been in community for a couple years. She says, I don't know if you can be my pastor. I said, oh, tell me more. Why? Why is this? She said, well, I'm from Saudi Daisy. You know who brought us Christmas gifts during the time we didn't have anything, or who brought Thanksgiving dinner, and who provided for us? The clan. And the people who formed my 
spirituality, I don't think that I ever learned that you can pastor me. Now, like, what do you do in a context like that? Where someone's in your church and you're caring for them. And at the same time, as this is happening, you're saying, well, I hope you don't leave. Like, you make up this church. You're part of this body. I was there for around three years. She stayed all three years. She's still there. It's her church. Um, Every church has people who will stay like that. None of you are there, I don't think. Uh, But I name that to say, that's the complexity that starts to bring this to the fore. How do we minister and how do we pour out to people who might hold a view of you? For a variety of reasons. It doesn't need to be about skin, skin color, racial makeup, ethnic heritage. It doesn't need to be about that. Maybe they, you encounter people who uh, view you in challenging ways for a variety of reasons. The way you embody the world, where you're from, what you do for a job, where you are socioeconomically, what education you got. Do you have kids? Do you not have kids? All these things, right? Like there's, there's ways that we can encounter people in our life who will emit a kind of view that makes us want to react, react out of fear and out of defensiveness, which then continues a cycle of dehumanization for all. This passage, those building blocks through this story, help us to recognize that there is another way to live. There are other ways to live. If we let love lead, fear fades, and confidence can reign. We can live with the confidence that God is sovereign over all. That doesn't mean that God's controlling all or micromanaging all. I know theologically there's a bunch of different ways to talk about how control and sovereignty come into play and all those things. That's a much bigger conversation. But think about things we've heard in our news in the discourse recently. We just had an earthquake that we heard about where 25,000 people are, uh, are, are dead, have passed away. Many more are missing in Syria and Turkey. There's things in our national discourse. There's things in our local discourse. There's things probably within our own circles, friends and family. There's things that are happening immediately on our doorstep in our own lives. This passage invites us to live with the kind of hope and live with the kind of confidence that God is inviting us to reflect the love that opens up and breaks cycles of dehumanization. That opens us up to be the change, so to speak, that we would love to participate in to make heaven present on earth. So when we think about the judgment of God, perhaps your tradition and theology has made it so that you have a particular vision um, that Theology itself, life itself, uh, people who experience God and people who don't experience God on this life, in this time, will go to separate places. That may or may not be true. 
But I lean on the work of one of my favorite theologians, Hans Urs von Balthasar. He wrote this great book called Dare We Hope That All Will Be Saved. That's the posture I want to leave us in today. Dare we hope that all will be saved. Dare we hope that all will be made well. Dare we hope that the love of God really can turn people who are fighting brother from brother into brothers in arms together. Dare we hope that the love of God shared can transform the world in ways that bring brokenness back to wholeness, that make things complete, that perfect love can be experienced in this world through the way that we embody the presence of Jesus in our world. Dare we hope that all might do this. This is our hope. This is what the passage brings us to. It leaves it hanging so that next week, it starts to say, yes, this hope does exist. But in this chapter, as we trace out the judgment of God, let us do things that we talked about earlier. Let us crave accountability that calls us up. Crave something that makes us whole. Again, not to call out us in a way that minimizes who we are, but to call us into a way of being that helps us recognize we have brokenness in our lives, every one of us. And in that brokenness, God doesn't want to just leave us there. God desires to make us whole. And it's not just for ourselves, but this wholeness matters for the world. It matters for the people we interact with on a day-to-day basis, in our families, but then beyond that. Coworkers, fellow students, right? all of these places. The love of God. Reflected in our lives, it matters. In a moment, we're going to uh, continue on in worship. And as we do, we will uh, sing and we'll close out our time together singing a song about love. Love is part of the, the refrain that we have carried through our whole day. But I want to invite us, if you are able and willing and you desire this thread of accountability, to again, start and do the practice we've been doing all week, or um, all series, which is we have over here on the cross, confessions made. Um, it's black marker on black paper. Really difficult to see. We invite you to hang that on the cross as your first embodied act of confession. Confession doesn't end here, but it starts here. It starts with us being able to, with no one else around, Acknowledge brokenness that is in our life. And then as we acknowledge that, might not even verbalize it, vocalize it, but as we acknowledge it in a small way, we start to recognize that this is something we can bring to others, bring to people who it needs to be brought to. And so we invite you to participate in that practice if you're able to, and if you feel pressed into that. I also invite you to receive Uh, receive this prayer I'm going to pray over us that brings about the fullness of God, that invites us to experience the love of God. And then let's continue in worship as we sing together. I'm going to invite the band up. Um, But friends, let us pray together. God, we are grateful 
for your life and the life you call us into. We're grateful that you are a good God. That you make our lives more lively and you call us to do the same. That your love transforms us and the world. And you invite us to participate, not as uh, passive recipients of your love, but as active receivers and sharers of your love. And so we pray that you would, in all of the ways we interact with people this week, show us how we can step into this well. Show us how can we can respond with confidence to you, our living God, by the power of the Spirit, Show us how we can find healing ourselves and recognize that that healing begins a process of healing relationships with God, with neighbor, with creation. We pray you'd be stirring in our hearts as we sing and as we do respond to you in the ways that you prompt us to. We pray that you would illuminate moments and areas of our life that need your touch. You are the great physician. Bring healing to us today. And may we bring your healing to the world in the ways that we respond. We pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen.